also have a special guest. We have Tim on the line. Hi, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me, Jacqueline. Thank you for being here. And I know we kind of touched on this just before, but I always like to ask my guests where they're coming in from, just because I find it so fascinating that the world is huge and massive, but technology makes us seem so close. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it amazing how, how you can just reach out the, around the world if you really wanted to? But yeah, I'm in Ohio. I am about an hour north of Columbus in a very rural farming type community. I've got one stoplight town. I just live outside of that. And so I have a couple of acres and my dogs and my wife and kids are growing up. So it's a nice, quiet life. That's awesome. MD nest syndrome or not, not didn't happen for you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. I mean, you, you miss the kids and all that, but my daughter is 22 and married and just had a couple grandbabies. So we're getting into that piece of life now. That's exciting. How old are the grandbabies? Just one and two and a half. Oh, wow. They are babies. <laughs> yeah, they're baby babies. So they're, they're at that fun stage uh, right now. And, I, you know, coming to the grandparents' house is so much more fun. If I would have known I could just have grandbabies and didn't have to raise kids, I think I would have jumped right to that. It's so, so awesome. Yeah, I hear that a lot with um, from the grandparents' perspective. For sure. Yeah, I'm sure my, my daughter doesn't appreciate that, but it's, it's a running joke. I mean, you do tend to, you know, got to remember like, hey, I still got my daughter and I still got my, my other kids. You know, you can't just be the grandbaby. But seeing the seeing your kids has the grandbabies at the perk for coming along, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. I am super looking forward to our conversation and your words of wisdom that you're going to share with us. But prior to that, I always like to kind of start the conversation just by thanking you for being open to the conversation and being willing to continue the conversation surrounding mental health and, and trauma. I know, obviously, they're not easy conversations to have, especially when it's our own story of struggle and, and overcoming. But I wanted to thank you, Tim, for being open to kind of sharing your experiences and your wisdom. I know for most, it's not an easy, easy conversation. It typically is uncomfortable. So I just wanted to thank you for, for being a guest and for starting and continuing the conversation with me. I'm, I'm excited to do it. And I'm glad there are people like yourself out there who are, are working on this topic and putting things out there for other people, hopefully them through their, their trauma and their difficulty. I always say, not just trauma, but just extreme adversity in general, any adversity, especially the stuff that's very extreme in our lives, it's an opportunity to grow or it's an opportunity to crumble. And so it's a difficult, difficult time. And so that's exactly what you're going to talk to us about, I believe, is overcoming the adversity and, and finding the growth. So we are ready to hear your wisdom whenever you are ready to share with us, Tim. Okay, well, I mean, I guess I should probably just start and give you some background about why I feel like I'm the person to talk about this, right? Uh, you know, back when I was 16 years old, I was, I kind of identified as an athlete growing up. So basketball, baseball, football, all those sports, you know, regular sports things that young boys do. And at 16 years of age, I was in a car accident and I broke my neck. And wow. so I was, par I was completely paralyzed. I, I couldn't move early in the Early on, they weren't sure if I was going to survive the first few hours, then that looked better. Then the next few days, they weren't sure if I was ever going to walk again. And, you know, I think if I'd been older, 
uh, that might have really affected me, but I think I was just young and dumb, as they say. And so I was like, no, I'm going to be playing basketball here in two weeks, right? I had this mentality of this is nothing. I'll overcome it. Um, but, but it was something major, and it took a long time. I was in a wheelchair. I never really played organized sports again uh, because I still have a handicap to it. Not, I don't even call it a handicap. I've never termed that. I just use it now. It's the first time in my life, my whole adult life, I've used that term because I consider a handicap someone that truly can't get around. I'm mm-hmm. good enough to go. I can go in the gym and shoot basketball. I can go to the local gym and lift weights. And, and I, I'm not a handicap by any means in my, my view. It's just that sometimes my right side gives out or if I lift a lot or underdevelop because it just doesn't have that, that strength that a normal body would have. So I learned to adapt and live with it. And so that was the first moment in time where I had to figure out, like, who am I now? And so that was the very first adversity that I faced. And so from an early age, I had to understand how to change. And, and what happened to me was about 18 years of age, I was, went back to school graduated but I also became a coaching assistant uh, at 18 years of age in high school still and that kind of gave me a new direction and I embraced that and I coached some form of basketball or baseball or anything like that you know over the last 20 plus years so I've, I've worked with a lot of kids and I hopefully made a, a positive impact on a lot of lives and and if I hadn't missed the broken neck I would have probably not coached because I was you know in this different mindset so the injury and the trauma of that, once I got over it, led to something new in my life. And when you say, Tim, you got over it, what did that look like? Was that, um, obviously there's a lot of physical struggles, but was there a lot of kind of mental mindset struggles? Or do you think you were just very resilient as a youth and just kind of bounced back because you didn't know any different? Yeah, no, no, you're, you're, you're 100% right, because th- there were a lot of struggles, a lot of struggles, a lot of crying myself to sleep at night, because you're like, I can't go to school and be around my friends anymore, I can't play sports, I'm just, you know, laying here in this bed, I can't even feed myself at this point, I can't bathe myself, I mean, I can't do anything, right, because initially I was paralyzed for a certain amount of time, and I had nurses who would come take care of me, and, and all these things, and, and so it was very traumatic, and, and there was a point where I didn't want to go on, you know, mentally, like okay I'm done I'm just just going to check out here and luckily I would say I wasn't um strong enough to do it if you will and it might be a bad term to use that way but you know what I mean like I just I I I didn't want to live at that point but yet I wasn't going to kill myself because I just didn't know that like how would that affect the people around me right I was thinking about others in that moment and and that was a good thing to have strong family because otherwise who knows what would have happened and so what did your supports look like um, with family and friends and your support system, were they, I guess, very supportive or were they supportive to an extent, but almost kind of struggled with support because they didn't know how to support? Yeah, no, I think in this situation, people were very, very, very supportive. And if you hear footsteps with my dog in the background, I apologize that they're one around the house here. But anyway, I felt like the, the whole town I lived in, like I said, I'm, I moved back to where I grew up. So I'm back in the same community now. I moved away for a while, went to school and went to some other places. But I came back to raise my own kids because community, community means a lot to me. Uh, they, they were all there for me, my, my friends, my family, my teachers. 
everybody in the, the local business people, there are people still here who were there for me. I remember them back growing up at the age of 16, having that broken neck. And so I don't think everybody gets that luxury. And I, I always think about what about the people that don't have that support staff? Even on my mom's side of the family, they had 12 kids growing up. So I have a tremendous amount of aunts, uncles, cousins. When we get together, it is, it is crazy how many people are at a cookout. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> and yeah, so I'm sorry, I was going to say, so, you know, that makes a big difference. What about the people that don't have that? I think that would be a tougher conversation, a tougher struggle, a tougher way to, um, you know, kind of get over some things. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, what did it look like? I guess kind of in the beginning stages when you were paralyzed, I, I feel kind of silly in asking this, but I just don't know. So I thought, you know, maybe if I don't know, others might not know, but what does it look like when one is paralyzed and then becomes not paralyzed? I kind of, I guess I kind of understood it as either you are or you aren't, you aren't, but there's not the, you are paralyzed, but then eventually you might not be if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. It was one of those situations where, I, like I said, I was dumb enough because I was young enough that I didn't ever think of myself as going to be in this wheelchair forever, right? I mean, I just had this mindset, I'm going to get out, I'm going to go with my friends, I'm going to play ball, I'm going to do these other things again. And, and it was a long, hard struggle. It was constant therapy. I think it was three or four times a week I had to go to the hospital for, for the therapy. They had a hospital bed in the house that they brought in. Otherwise, I'd been stuck in the hospital for a lot longer than I was. Uh, so I, my mom learned how to like kind of be, be the nurse from home and clean like the, uh, the wounds and things they had to fix. They had the halo on where they put these pins in your head to hold you perfectly straight with your neck. Uh, and I thought wow. they came a long way with that, but apparently they haven't. I saw someone the other day on a show, he had a, a newer version of the same exact contraption I had, which was a halo. They call it a halo. It sounds so heavenly, right? But it's essentially <laughs> a, a round thing goes around your head. And they put these pins into your head and they drill them into your skull to hold your head perfectly straight. And it is wow. extremely painful. Uh, it was painful going in and it was painful coming out because when he took it out, I actually told the doctor when he finally taken off, I said, are you doing that correctly? Because the pressure felt like he was crushing your head. And he, and he joked with me, he said, I hope so for your sake. Oh, geez. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's just a long recovery for something like that. And again, in my case, I was very lucky because the other day, I, that was a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, and I think about it, but a young kid rear-ended us. We were at a stoplight, and I kind of jolted my head, and I had to go to the doctor just to get checked out because of my injury. You have to be careful with those things. And I had to go see a new doctor. My doctor retired for the next specialist. And the guy walked in, and he said, oh. And I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. And he said, no, no, no. He said, all I saw was your MRI, and I assumed you'd be in a wheelchair. Oh, and then he wow. proceeded to tell me that he'd been this like 30 or 40 years. He's like, I've never seen a case with an MRI like that where the person wasn't in a wheelchair. Wow. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I said. I'm like, well, and he actually said to me, he goes, I consider you a me- medical marvel. And my wife and I got a kick out of that. And it's like, you know, you got to be grateful for the things you do have in life, because maybe I wasn't meant to walk again maybe that you know and yet my faith and my belief and my my you know desire overcame that um so it's kind of neat to hear that in a way and it's kind of scary though because you think as i get older 
am I going to end up back in that wheelchair because as things deteriorate and things like that. So I have a double-edged sword there. And how has your health been so far? So far, so good. Now, I, I, you know, I just reached that wonderful age of the 50. I'm in the 50s now, so uh, I, I get a little more concerned about it, and I need to get back in the gym and work out a lot more than I have been lately. I've been constantly on the go with work and, and grandkids and just running, and I can start to feel it a little bit. My neck's been sore, and my, my body just feels a little tired, and, and that's as a result of me not working out because I don't really have the luxury where I can just lay around and, and get heavier and eat whatever I want. I've got to do some exercising or it does start to affect me in a negative way. Yeah. And so can we kind of break down, Tim, how you, maybe a couple things, how you maybe had the belief system and the faith in yourself and in maybe a higher power and also your mindset to overcome that big injury and that traumatic experience? Yeah, actually, I think I probably should share with you the second part of this second trauma in my life. And, and then we could talk about that because that's where sure. things really changed for me. Okay. So, so let's fast, let's fast forward. That was in high school. I get out of high school. I go to college and, and I, I do the, the, the young guy thing and I'm drinking, I'm partying, I'm doing all this stuff that probably is not the best thing in the world for you, but it's that age, right? I progress through and then eventually I settle down. I'm in my mid twenties. I, I meet who's now my wife. And we've been together 20 some years, but we finally get married and we, we have a family. And one day, that was the first day of spring 2013, as a matter of fact, um, I, I took my five-year-old son to the babysitter. I kissed him, hugged him, told him I loved him, and I, I went to work. It's like every other day that I, I did that because my wife gets up earlier than I do and heads to work. So I always took the, the children to the babysitter. So I took Seth, dropped him off, and then that evening, I get a phone call. And my wife is just panicked beyond belief. And so to kind of summarize this, I end up in the emergency room that night and um, my, my five-year-old son passed in a, in a home accident. Wow. And so the broken neck was nothing compared to the pain of that moment. Even now as I talk about it, you can probably hear a little bit of emotion in my voice just because it, to this day, it's been 10 years now and it's difficult to talk about. When I think about how he died in the home, and out of all things, it was a bunk bed accident. And I get upset because of the fact that they didn't tell us that the bunk beds could be fatal to you know children. They say you think of them getting a top bunk, falling off, hitting the head, breaking the arm, leg, whatever. But they can get caught up, and they they can get strangled by their little bodies being in a position they, they shouldn't be in. And so we had this absolutely horrendous event, and you know I just don't even know how to like talk about it beyond you know beyond that right there as far as saying what happened but but my point was going to be this that was like 10 times worse than any physical pain like the physical pain of the broken neck I would go back in the wheelchair I would have the halo and have those pins in my head and, and go through all that over and over again compared to what losing a child is like and it's the worst pain anybody I think could possibly face in this world and so Firstly, I am so sorry to hear that. And I I know, speaking from a similar experience, it wasn't a child, but it was a best friend that I had lost. I I think the grieving process, it never ends. And it it obviously looks different for for you and for me and for the next person in line. But I think 
kind of the moral of the story for loss in general is it never ends. And so even you saying, you know, 10 years that it's, that it's been the 10 years, it, it probably doesn't seem easier because that's just your grief journey. Yeah. Yeah. You're hundred percent correct. And that's what I, when I go out and talk to people now, I'll, I'll talk about that, how um, different people and different studies have different opinions about how long a grief process is going to be. I mean, mm-hmm. there's books written, there's the psychological pieces that, but at the end of the day, they've come to the conclusion, which I could have told them this pretty easily, that you never, a parent will never quit grieving that loss. And I said, well, of course not, because if you take, let's just say you bake a cake and you're entering this cake in this wonderful baking contest, right? In this local fair or something, and someone takes a piece of that cake out, well, it's going to change the whole cake, right? That appearance of it and the way it, it, it was supposed to be. And mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll use that as an example, though, of how when a piece of you is ripped out like that, you're never going to be the same again. That, that cake is never going to be what it was, but it doesn't mean the cake is all bad. There's still good pieces of the cake, but it's a little harder to win that first place prize when you're struggling with that missing piece, if that makes sense. No, that's, I mean, oddly enough, I was like, where is Tim going with this cake analogy? But no, it makes total sense. The there's a whole chunk of the cake missing and the cake represents your life and your son is that piece that's missing. It makes total sense. Yeah. In fact, that's one thing I'm starting to use now is I go out and I'll buy a cake to go to my, my child loss group or something I'm going to talk to. And then I'll kind of use that analogy. And that's why that came from where it's like, it's a, it's a visual for people and it's simple to see, like, are we going to throw this whole cake out now? Or are we going to still you know, divide it up and eat it and nourish other people and, and keep going with what's left? Or are we going to throw the entire cake out because that one piece is missing? Well, of course, you probably are not going to throw the entire cake out. But yet we get caught up in that, right? Once that piece is missing, sometimes we get caught and, and we think, well, this cake's no good anymore. Our life is no good anymore. And, and so that's what you have to learn to overcome. And that can be difficult. And what is your, what is your experience with learning to, to overcome that trauma that you experienced, that adversity. How did you get to the point of the growth? Yeah, so from a spiritual side, um, whether you believe in God or not or whatever, but for me, religion always came hard because I'm a very scientific guy. I, like, I want proof of everything. And so I went to, I was raised in a Lutheran church and I went to catechism and I got baptized, all those things you do. But I still always kind of struggled as I, as I got older, like, how do all these things happen in, around the world in a negative way? Like, why should I believe this or that? Mm-hmm. Well, after Seth died, we went to my mom's house to stay, stay with her for a few days. And for like three nights, I didn't sleep. I just couldn't sleep. But on that third night, my body was so exhausted, it finally gave out. But I had been spending that time lying awake in the middle of the night, sitting there in the chair, and I'd argue with God, right? I'd be like, well, if you exist, you know, where were you? when my, my son needed you, right? All those typical things you could imagine someone would be yelling and saying. And, and I wasn't very nice about it. I used to, you know, I cursed him and I yelled at him and I questioned him and, and all those things. And, and that third night, I finally got tired. I, a couple hours, I woke up and these visions were in my head. And it was of Seth and I and all the things we used to do together. It was like a whole montage of, of, our, of our short time together. And I, I kind of focused in on the time that he would come to me every night, he was every night pretty much, and he would say, 
you know what time it is, Dad? And I, I play his game. I'd be like, no, what time is it? And he's like, you know what time it is. Like, is it time for you to clean your room? Like, no. You know, we'd go back and forth joking around like that until I finally would say, is it snuggle time? And then he would like come up in my lap and say, yes, it's snuggle time. And he would snuggle with me and we would read a book or watch TV or do something until he was ready to go be put in bed and go to sleep. And this is pretty much every night. And that's the, that's the message I kind of focused in on. And, and so I, I get up and I, you know, I, I get up and I'm, I'm writing all this down on a Facebook post and I shared it and it got shared like a hundred thousand times the story that I wrote about these visions and what I saw. And wow. eventually that story got turned into a children's book. And so that's kind of where that came from. And, and the funny thing was though, my wife had told me the night before she said, have you got a sign from your son yet? And again, I told you I'm scientific. I'm like, I don't believe in getting signs like that. I'm like, no, you know, you're crazy wife of mine, you know, that doesn't work. So I get up the next morning. She said, did you get your sign last night? And, and me being stubborn, I said, no, I didn't get a sign. I didn't think of the vision as a sign, although maybe it was, right? And I said, well, I need to go out the house though this morning. I need to get a change of clothes. I need to pet the dogs. I need to feel normal. And my wife says, I, I can't go back in that house right now. I said, that's fine. I'll go by myself. And so I came out the house, and, and her sister was staying here, house sitting for us. And she, uh, I, come, I took a shower, I came out, petted the dog, and then she said, hey, have you got your sign yet? And, and I started laughing because I'm like, what's with these sisters and these ideas of signs, right? Because I'm not <laughs> that kind of person. I'm like, you guys are weird. Like, I, lo <laughs> I love you guys, but you're weird. And she said, I think you're getting it right now. And I looked out the back window. In Ohio, we have cardinals, so it's not abnormal, but I have them. And on a branch of, of the tree in the backyard was the most bright red cardinal I had ever seen. It was just like the sun was shining off of him, and he was staring at me. And it's just something about him was different. And so I went outside to get a picture so I could show my wife when I got back to my mom's house. And the birds started chirping at me. And then he kind of moved down the tree line. And I kind of tried to get closer and follow him. And he would stop every so often. He would chirp, and then he would go a little bit, and he would stop and chirp and look at me again. And finally, he kind of stopped this one pot, and he just started chirping like crazy. I, I've never heard a bird do what this bird did with me in that moment. It's like an interaction, and I tried to emulate what he was doing, and we went back and forth for a few minutes. And then something in my mind just said, look down. I don't know where that thought came from, but it said, look down. And I looked down, and between my feet is this baseball. And it wasn't like in the general vicinity. It was like literally right between the toes of my shoes. And I reached down, I picked it up, and it was the baseball that Seth had lost that weekend before he passed. And he had been upset about it because he was worried that dad was going to be mad at him for losing a baseball. Wow. But the fact is we had a bucket of balls so that you know, I wouldn't have been mad. But the point was the bird, out of all chances in the world, the bird led me to that ball that had been lost. And then I, I picked it up and said, is this my sign? And the, and the bird chirped at me. And then it flew back to the branch where it was originally. And I started to walk back toward the house. And then he flew away. And the thing was, that was the moment where I thought, okay, maybe I don't know how the world works. Maybe I don't know how the spiritual side of things works. Because in the moment when I was staying in the hospital uh, ER that night, and they told me my son, you know, they said, we've done everything we can. There's nothing more we can do. I was like immediately, everything shut off. Like everything I thought I knew was gone. Everything I thought I believed in was, was turned, turned around, twisted. I didn't know where I was going, what I was thinking, what I was going to do. But now this moment with the, with the Cardinal, 
gave me that hope, gave me that inspiration, and gave me that belief that maybe I don't know it all, and maybe there's a lot more to learn. And so for the last 10 years, I've been studying different religions and different concepts and signs that people get around the world, and it's been fascinating. And I, I, I could do a whole two hours of talking about that alone. It's just there's so much out there that I still can't wrap my head around how it works. I don't know if any one religion has it right or not. I think all religions have a lot of value and have a lot of things that are probably right. And, uh, you know, I'm always careful when I say it, though, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I still always come back to my Christianity, right? At the, at the core of who I am, I was raised that way, and I have strong beliefs in that. that. But I'm also very open-minded. I'm more of a progressive Christian, if you will, as in I'm open enough to consider the value of meditation, the value of these other religions and what they teach, and I like to learn about why they teach. Can you, can you, I know you said that there's a lot to it and I can respect that, but can you give us maybe another example of the spirituality and kind of a sign that somebody else has maybe shared with you? Yeah, well, I actually studied, um, I, I called up this gentleman and I wish I remember his name now, I'll pop my head at camp, but he was a professor at um, West Virginia, one of the colleges. And he was studying and wrote, wrote a couple of books about this, this concept of how children would remember a past life that they lived. And I thought, how does that happen, right? And like these children would like remember details of a previous life. Now we're talking about two, three, four years of age, really young. Wow. And their parents were like taken aback, like how do they know this? And so his job was to take his team out and prove the best they could or disprove this existence of why this child is saying these things. And sometimes he said, I was able to disprove, like the, the parents had, had said stuff that they didn't realize and the child had picked up on it and he kind of just, in his mind, he created this and he happened to be right, right? So there's some of that. But then there was other ones he said that there was, they really believe this child may have lived a past life and they died prematurely and they came back into this new life. Now, people may not believe that, but this was a paid for study by a college because there's so much science behind it and they don't have the answers. And so those things fascinate me because it's like, how could that possibly happen? Because my normal life, I'd be like, no, that's not possible. And now I'm going, yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. So that's another example of things that are out there that maybe most of us aren't educated about or have never read about. And I just find, find those things fascinating. That is extremely fascinating. And uh, like almost unbelievable in a sense. Yeah. Like, no, that's fair. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know if there's another word to describe. Just very skeptical, I guess. But I've also heard of stories from people around me that have experienced similar things. I personally haven't, but I've heard others have. And it, it's, incredible but confusing at the same time (laughs) i said all the time i say this if i had not experienced all the different things i've experienced not just the cardinal i could give you like a ton of examples in fact i I wrote my book on it because i have so many different ones it's one of those things where it's like i can't explain it and i i would not object to anybody telling me you're nuts because if i hadn't experienced it I would not believe it. I just wouldn't because the way my mind works, I'd be like, nah, that's, that's crazy. But since I experienced it, 
I look at everything a little bit different. I look at the world through different eyes and in different ways that I would never have prior to my son's death. And so do you feel like you were able to, I'm going to say get through, but I'm using air quotes, get through the loss of Seth because of the emerging spirituality side of yourself? Or do you feel like there was more to it than just that? I think there's a lot of things that go on as you try to recover. And, and um, I got to writing my books and doing different things like that. And, and I met with the pastor one day and he was trying to help me uh, get the word out about some things. And he, he looked at me and said, so while you're out here burying yourself in all this, where's your wife? And I said, well, she's at home. He said, think about what you just said. And so it turned out he was a marriage counselor prior to becoming a pastor. <laughs> so, so he had good background for this. But he woke me up to say, you can't go forward and leave your, your spouse behind. That's why marriages break up when there's a death like that. And it, a lot of marriages do break up as a result of losing a child, unfortunately. And, and so I had to step back and say, okay, I need to approach this a little differently. What I was doing was I was burying my pain and my hurt and my work. And yet I wasn't there for my wife or my daughter and other people that needed me because that's how I was dealing with my pain. And so those kinds of things you have to stop and think about. And that opened my eyes to like, okay, I've got to rethink how I'm going to get through this. Like, how am I going to heal? How am I going to get over this pain and hurt? Because you're never going to get over it. That's even not a bad phrase to use. You know, people say, oh, you're going to get over time. No, you don't. You just don't. But you have to learn how to deal with it, how to know when those moments are going to hit you, how you, how you are going to overcome those moments or how you're going to survive those moments. And so that's kind of what I had to, to think about and start to do. And so eventually, though, when you can let go of the emotional, what I call the emotional baggage, and this is actually a psychological term, psychology, they talk about post-traumatic growth, which you mentioned earlier, PTG, but you can't get the post-traumatic growth part if you're stuck from the trauma and you have that emotional baggage that guilt that guilty feeling that that pain that hurt that fear that self-doubt all these things that come up inside of you from an emotional perspective and they're a direct result of the trauma and it could be that you lost someone like i did but it could also be maybe someone was raped or someone um had a severe being divorced where the father husband was abusive or maybe as a child your parent was abusive you know there's a lot of different ways this trauma can cause this emotional baggage and if you get caught in the emotional baggage and you can't overcome and deal with that through counseling or different methods then you can't get to the growth phase and i think and you mentioned this before the show started a lot or, or many people get stuck in that emotional baggage situation and they say, well, I, I don't know why I can't get over this or I can't move on from this or I can't whatever. Well, you can't keep going forward if you're caught in that trauma of the emotional baggage that we've already talked about. And do you have any, I guess, maybe insight into other potential supports or... Yeah, I guess potential sports would kind of cover um, for those that are trying to get through the struggle but aren't on the other side of the 
traumatic event or tragedy or loss that they've experienced? Sure. Yeah, I always say, number one, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, anything like that. So I, I'm always laying that out there because I want anybody to think when I talk about this stuff that I'm giving professional advice, right? Because we're just two people who are talking here and, and we've been through trauma in our lives and we're sharing what we know based on our experiences. And yep. so what, what I can say based on my experience is, number one, if you are isolating yourself, because the pain or, or maybe you feel guilty about whatever it is that happened in your life and you, so you just you stay in your home or you avoid people you just you want to try to heal by yourself that is a difficult way to try to live because most likely you're going to be stuck in that room alone for a long long time because in my situation it was the support of the community the support of my family the support of my friends without that I don't think I could have made it I just don't think I could have. So number one, you've got to have a support system. No matter who that is or what that is, if you don't have it, you're going to have a hard go of it. We've gone to uh, here in a few weeks to talk to a grief group in, in Tiffin, Ohio. And I, I attended some grief groups. And I don't know if they did a lot for me as far as for me personally, but I enjoyed them because to hear that I wasn't alone in my suffering was huge. To, mm -hmm. to hear other stories and then also to support those people. Because as I got a little stronger, I realized, okay, I can deal with this. But then I would go to the support group and it'd be somebody brand new, fresh, like a young lady had lost, uh, she had a, a stillborn, a stillborn baby. And, and she was just beside herself. And so she said, said something during the group that really stuck with me and, and, and it hurt me. And I had to speak up to her and I, and I talked to her. But she said, my loss is not as bad as your loss because you're, you had five years with your son and then he was ripped away. I can't imagine. And I had to stop her, and you know, I didn't stop her in that moment, but I had to stop her afterwards, and I said, please don't ever do that again. And she's like, she looked at me funny, and I said, what I mean by that is don't ever discount your pain. Don't ever discount your feelings or think that somebody else's pain is worse than what you're going through. Because mm -hmm. at least I got five years, right? You didn't get five years. You had to go through this whole different situation. So to compare the two is unfair. Was five years difficult? Of course it was. Well, so was a stillborn baby. So would be a 25-year-old or a 40-year-old. You know, it's your child. It's a piece of you. And so I think we tend to do that as humans. We, we, we analyze and compare ourselves to what's going on around us and what others are doing or how they're doing it. Like if you look at me and you say, well, he's doing with it really well. Number one, no, he's not. He hides it well. Okay. Number one, that's not true. But number two, don't compare because you are on your own journey. And when you compare to other people, that's a negative and that's going to keep you in that bad pattern of where you don't need to be. So, you know, go on your journey, figure it out, use groups and support systems, counseling if you need it. Like my wife went to counseling and she wanted me to go. And at the time I refused. And that's the biggest mistake when I look back on it. I think my whole family would have been better off if we would have gone as a family together. And I should have bit the bullet. Unfortunately, guys, we're just stubborn like that. We, we don't want to do counseling. And then we have this concept of mental health. You know, we got to be men, right? We got to be, we're the father, we're the husband, we're the strong one. Mm -hmm. And we're not doing counseling. We're not talking about our feelings. At that you know what I mean? And so I look back on it now in hindsight, and I wish I would approach that differently. That would have definitely been helpful for, for my wife, for my daughter, and for my family as a whole. And how did your 
Was your daughter born at that time? Yeah, she was actually in the seventh grade at the time. So uh, how did... And... I was just going to ask, ahead. how did the kind of grief process or the 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 struggle and the ability to overcome how was that different between your wife your daughter and yourself yeah so so with Allie this one thing I was saying I, I kind of regret looking back like everything hindsight so easy right but I was so caught up in my pain and my hurt that I didn't do a real good job of comforting my wife or my child my child uh, you know my wife I probably comforted more than my daughter Luckily, my daughter had a lot of friends and also other people who had lost a sibling reached out. So we had people in the community who'd gone through something similar. And so they were able to kind of help counsel her through some of this stuff and talk to her and, and give her some, somebody to reach out to. But I look back on it and we did things as a family. We went to Florida after uh, the funeral just to get away for a week and, and spent some time together. And so we did those things. But over the long haul, you know, I always say initially when, when you have a loss or a traumatic event, you tend to have a lot of people that come around mm-hmm. and as time goes on, you're alone. And that's when it gets tough. Like the days after that Seth died, whole community was around. People were bringing food and they were checking in on us and they were stopping over and visiting and hanging out to all hours of the night. It was constant influx. Then a few weeks after we get home and we're back in the house finally and it's completely quiet. And that's when the real challenge starts because now you don't have that, support staff you have a few left but the reality is people have to go back to their own lives they have their jobs they have their families they have their kids they have all the things they're doing and so they can't be there for you forever and and when it gets quiet that's when it gets tough do you have any insight from your personal experiences with yourself and your family for how you celebrate Seth? Or do you celebrate Seth still? Yeah, I think Emma's lost a child. They have, they have every holiday's hard. Okay? Every holiday, the change of seasons are hard. Like when, when the go, time to go back to school, you think about he would have been this many years old this year, even this grade, you know, he didn't get to do that. And so those moments hurt. Christmas time, he's not here for another Christmas. It was difficult, all, all those things. But for parents of loss, I think there's two days that really stick out. One, their birthday and to their death day. And so every year in November, we do something for his birthday. It may be not big, but it's just something to remember and celebrate him. Um, not that you don't think of him every single day, but we, we still celebrate in that way. And, and then the death day in March, uh, we always do something or at least go to the grave. And, you know, we do some kind of remembrance. This year was marked 10 years in March of this year. And we actually, my daughter had um, surprised my wife and had people come out to the house. I'd take my wife out. I knew what was going on and took her out to eat. And then we came back and we had, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people at the house. We did a balloon release and um, those kinds of things. So, and it really made my wife feel good knowing that all this time later, people still remembered and thought of us and and of of him. That's one of the biggest fears when people lose a child is they're afraid that people are going to forget their child. And that's the worst feeling. Like they didn't get to live long enough to be remembered. And so, so that's difficult. Do you, I mean, you, you almost kind of answered this in a way. And this, I guess this question is coming more from my personal experience with loss of one of my best friends, but I grew up in a really small community as well. And 
you know, for the first maybe year, maybe two years that she had passed, people would constantly reach out relatively often and relatively frequently. I I feel like after that two-year mark, it just kind of, I don't want to say people forget, but they just stop reaching out and they think you're quote-unquote over it. And I find now I, we actually just reached, I'm trying to do math in my head. (laughs) Well, this year will be 11 years. So the 10 year anniversary was last year. And I that even when time has passed for so long and it seems like so far away, people don't really want to talk about her anymore or they don't want to ask about her or bring up a memory anymore. Is that, do you, do you resonate with that? Do you feel the same or do you, is your community more pro conversations about loss of loved ones? No, no, I think as a society, we do a horrible job, a horrible job of dealing with grief and, and loss. Uh, I always said, for, especially for people who lost a child, because that's what I deal with a lot, is it, it's 10 times worse, too, because there's this, like, I don't know how to say this, but the society doesn't understand the fact that people who bereave parents, who've lost a child, you need to talk about them. You want to hear about them. You want the, your friends and family to share a memory. You, but on the flip side, those friends and family, they're afraid to talk about it. They feel like they're going to hurt you or they're going to make you cry. And sometimes they do make you cry when they tell you a story. But sometimes that's tears of joy and happiness, even though it's sad that you're having this wonderful memory shared with you. Like the other day, I don't know, a few months ago, but someone shared a, a, a new picture with me of Seth where he's at their house and doing something with their child or whatever. And that was like, oh, wow, this is awesome because you don't get any more pictures. You don't get to create any more memories. And so when people talk to you about it and they share something that maybe you hadn't heard before, it's like a breath of fresh air. It gives you this, this jubilant feeling inside that normally you don't get. And so you hit on that so, so perfectly that our world does not handle death and grief, at least in America. Other cultures don't handle it so badly, but America, it's very weird how we how we. You know, we, we teach our kids and, and ourselves how to maybe balance a checkbook, um, make your car payment, you know, how to ride your bike, all this. But we don't teach them how to deal with grief and loss and death, right? That's not something that's taught. We just kind of usually learn it as it happens. And, and that's kind of sad in a way when we think about it because we're not prepared to deal with it. It's It's almost like one of those taboo topics. Like you at least in in the area I live in, which is relatively close to you, I, I feel like a lot of people don't want to talk about death or loss or the potential until it's already happened. And then you have no choice but to talk about it because you're going through it. No, you're you're 100% correct. That's exactly how, how I see it. And, and it's, it's a topic that I, I wish we could change. And, and hopefully in the future, we can educate people. It's one of the things that I'm trying to do. But that's just, that's a tough one. And, you know, we also, as a society, we put on a time limit on the grief, which is not fair either. So, you know, you get, what, maybe three days off of work for, for a bereavement leave. Uh, yeah. You might get, like, a certain amount of time that people think, like, your friends and family, like, well, it's been two weeks. I don't know why they're not getting over it. Oh my gosh, it's five months since they lost their child. You think they'd move on, right? 
and they're not being mean. It's the fact they don't understand. They, they are just, unless you've lost a child, I would say this, unless you've lost a child, then you don't understand that that grief never ends. You, you may never. say, oh, I feel bad. I feel bad for you. I know how you feel. No, you don't know how that person feels. I can tell you that right now. Uh, even I, at losing a child, I don't know how you feel if you lost a child. I know what I went through, and you're probably experiencing similar things. But my relationship may be very different than what your relationship was. My age of my child might be different, which would create different, a different situation. So it's really unfair to try to compare, as I said earlier, you don't want to compare losses and then to put a time frame on it. You know, you just got to let people grieve and you got to be supportive. And if it's been six months or a year and they're still struggling, be supportive, right? And, and unfortunately, we don't do that. We, we tend to think, man, I don't know what's taking them so long. They need to like, get their life back together. Mm-hmm. I think, un- uh, unfortunately, very, very unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people won't understand the the loss of loved ones. And it may be a parent, it may be a sibling, it may be a child, it may be a best friend. Whatever that loss looks like, I feel like people will not understand even a small amount of that loss until they've experienced a quote-unquote similar loss. So I guess an example would be I wouldn't be able to understand your grief of losing a child because I don't have children so until I have a child and I pray that I don't experience that but I wouldn't be able to experience the loss of a child unless I actually experienced it I can only imagine what it would feel like and then you know maybe somebody can't understand the loss of somebody grieving their mother until they lose their mother right like I feel like unfortunately there's just this understanding that you're not going to even come close to trying to understand until it happens. And then you, you only try to understand because you're forced to. (laughs) Yeah, no, well said. That's that's another point I make all the time is that if you lost a spouse, I don't know what that's like. I can't relate to that specifically. I understand grief. I don't understand your loss, what you're going through, what you're feeling. I might understand the concept, but there's going to be different. So you're 100% dead on on that. That's another point I always try to make, that, that different losses are different. And even if you have the same kind of loss, it could still be different based on that, that level of the relationship and the way you lived your life and the way you lived theirs and all those things. So I'm glad you pointed that out. That's such a, a, a great and valuable thing to just say. And I mean, as I said, as we both have said, it's super unfortunate that society is like that. But I think with the conversations that you're having regarding the loss of Seth and just your ongoing work that you're doing, I think you're doing a really great job, Tim, of working towards starting to make that conversation more normalized and less taboo. Well, I appreciate appreciate the positive uh feedback and support on that. You know, one of the things I was saying to you earlier that I I did was I created a facebeyond.org website. Now, currently, if you put, punch in that, it's going to take you to timmaseko.com. I just have it like joined in my, my personal timmaseko.com. And I kind of made my personal website to kind of incorporate my personal stuff, my books and things, and the concept of child loss and whatnot. But eventually, 
Uh, I'm working with someone to launch a new website where facebeyond.org will take you to this new website. It's going to be like a Facebook-type page. It's going to be a, a community where you can set up an account, and it's going to be geared towards those parents who've lost a child. Because what you just said a few minutes ago is exactly what I'm, I'm going for. I'm taking a segment of people, and I'm trying to connect them together with a website and have a blog on there and have uh, maybe a podcast and all these different things and then have live events and grief groups and all this stuff where we share the same kind of loss. And so you figure, they said there's about 10,000 children that die a year in the United States of America. So two parents, that's 20,000 people every year for how many years now? People are still suffering. So there's probably hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million people out there who unfortunately have experienced this. And not all of them have a grief group to go to. Not all of them have support staff. And so I want to create this, this social media site, if you will, that is geared strictly towards that group and hopefully bring them together and give them the support they need. And even if you already experienced it and you feel like, oh, I, I handle it pretty well, I'm hoping those people join too because I want them to be like that support staff for the new people who are, who are struggling. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to create, and I'm excited about. That's my favorite project I'm working on. Hopefully in the fall that'll be launched. I, I don't know yet. I'm working with another developer, and those things take, take time, of course. And I think you briefly touched on you're also an author. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I have a couple of books. I, when the Cardinal Calls, which was basically the story of the last day with Seth, and all through that Cardinal story and writing the book and then my family and all that. So I kind of went through that process. I journaled it on Facebook originally as I did this. And then I went back and I put all the stories together and I really got into detail because someone's like, I, you should put this in the book. And so I did that. And so that's out there. And also the, uh, the snuggle time story that I told you about earlier that, that got um, put into a children's book. And that was the weirdest thing too, because someone knew someone who knew someone who knew someone type thing. A lady in California uh, reached out to me and she had been in the book publishing business for like 30 or 40 years she said I get the exact number of years but she had all this experience she hired someone for me from Indonesia who drew all these illustrations for the children's book and I sent her the story of the snuggle time story and she got a hired an editor and they professionally edited this book and reworded it it had the professional illustrations and it was only meant originally to be kind of a memorial book for me, for my son. But it turned out so awesome. I mean, it, can, it would compete with any book out there as far as a children's story goes. And so just self-publishing it, we sold like 2,000 plus copies of it. And so now I've left it on Amazon now is one way you can get it. But um, we have some copies left here at the house. But I usually save those because they're the original copies. I take this out when I do it. Like, you ask me to come speak at your event, I'll bring some of the original books with me because it's kind of a cool thing to be like, this is the first, you know, thousand books ever published for this story. And uh, Amazon doesn't publish in the same size, you know, certain size criteria and stuff. So these are like the hardcover and then and they're really neat. So it's kind of a cool thing how that developed and kind of came about. I also use some of the book sales from the Snuggle Time book to help fund our 501c3 we founded. Uh, the Seth Mistake of Snuggle Time Foundation. So we have a nonprofit as well. And our nonprofit just kind of does some like support stuff around our community. We uh, take care of the Seth uh, ball field, which was named after him. We do some different things with, with the money out of that. So it's kind of cool. That's incredible. Well, it sounds like you're doing amazing work and 
and building such a huge community for those that need it. So that's, it's, it's incredible to see. Yeah. Hopefully that's where we go. I, I, I really appreciate your positive. Let me, I want to kind of wrap this up. I'm talking a long time here, but I just want to hit on that PTG we talked about though, before we wrap up. So real quickly, when you can finally start to get over some of the baggage that you have with you, and it takes a lot of time. It takes counseling and the support staff and, and all those things. But I, I tell this because at the end of the day, there's still light beyond the storm, right? In fact, let me share, the, share a real brief version of this with you, the buffalo story. Have you heard about the buffalo and the cow? I have not. Okay, this is a, a great story. I, when I heard it, I thought it was fake at first. I thought, yeah, that's not right. I looked it up and no, it, it's factual. So they said the researcher were studying the cow and how when an approaching storm would come, the cows would turn and they would run away from the storm. They would like try to, you know, get away. Makes sense, right? Storm's coming, cows run. Well, the buffalo, would, meanwhile, would turn and run into the storm. So like, they were confused. They're like, now, wait a minute. The, the cow is not as smart as the buffalo, but the cow runs away from the storm and the buffalo runs into the storm. That just seems weird. And so they kept doing the study. And here's what they found out. They found out the buffalo was turning and running into the storm and through the storm. So they were shortening the amount of time they spent in the storm because they realized that once they got through the storm, they could get back to their life. And I thought that was incredible because the cow was running and, and thinking about the storm and trying to avoid it. But eventually they run out of field. The storm still hits them. Now they have nowhere to go. So they got to stand in that storm and they're, they're prolonging the inevitable. Meanwhile, the buffalo is using its powerful being and will and strength to just bury through that storm as fast as they can and get back to the sunshine on the other side of the storm. And I love that because I say we need to be like the buffalo sometimes. But a lot of times we're like the cow. Like we just we try to avoid the hurt, the pain. We know it's going to be bad. And, and so we just prolong the inevitable. When sometimes maybe we do need to like just be like the buffalo and, and mouth our way through the storm. And, and so when you get out through the storm and get to the other side, there's a lot of great things still waiting for you. Maybe you like that? I, I love that story. Wow. I didn't realize that was, that's, I, I find nature and animals also just super fascinating that, that that's how they operate as well. Yeah, look it up. I mean, anybody can look that up. It's, it's actual fact. I, I love it. I was like, that'd be a great made up story. But then to find out they actually do that, it's amazing. So, so once you can get through the storm, the point is this, once you get through the storm, you can have what they call post-traumatic growth. And this is from the psycho psychology part of, of our, our brains and the way we, we operate as humans. But real quickly, there's five things that they say you will be able to embrace. And you may not have all five of these, but you're going to see some variation of these. And even when you're still suffering, you might still see a few of these things pop up. So one, you have stronger relationships. So you went through the traumatic event, and now you've come out of it. And when they talk about stronger relationships, it means the ones that you love, you're going to love even more. You're going to have that passion. You're going to want to spend that time with them. You want to have those moments, right? But also, you might reprioritize who's important in your life because maybe people you thought would be there weren't, and people you didn't think would be there were, and you realize maybe that's the person I should be hanging out with a little bit more, right? So you, you might reprioritize and have stronger relationships as a result of the trauma. So that's the positive. And then they talk about how you will flavor moments more. You're going to carry every second because you realize the preciousness of the time we do have and that when it's good 
it's really good, right? You're going to enjoy it more. You're going to savor it. So, so that's the positive. The third thing is you find this inner strength that you never knew you had. It's like when I broke my neck, I never thought twice about it, but also I grew a lot because I had to. I had no choice. It was either grow or stay in that wheelchair, right? So you, you find this inner strength, and then you can go back and draw on that strength when you have difficult times in the future. You can say, look, I already broke my neck. I already lost my child. I, this, is, this adversity this time is nothing. I've already been here, done it, right? So you can draw on the strength from that. And I think that's awesome. And the last two things was you will possibly grow more spiritually. And like in my case, I did a lot more studying of spirituality. I wanted to know more. And a lot of people will do that. They, they have a different view and they want to know more and more and more. Other people, may, maybe they're in the church. They may grow stronger in how they go to church more frequently and all these things. But they grow in some manner from a spiritual uh, situation. Maybe you don't go to church. Maybe you don't believe in God. And um, you still can be more spiritual in the sense that you feel like there's something bigger out there for you. And so that can be a positive no matter what your view on religion may be. And then the final one, I think one of the best things about it is it forces us to go on a new path in our life when maybe we have blinders on, right? We're just going through life. We're living in a tunnel. And now this adversity hits. Like when I broke my neck, all of a sudden I went into coaching, something I may not have done. And now the when my child died, horrifying, horrible years. But now look where I am. I have a, a nonprofit that I help run. I have a, a wonderful um, life at a new job that I started. I have this side, uh, side thing I'm kicking off with, the faithbeyond.org. I'm going out to speak to churches, and I'm going out to child loss groups, and, and I've written multiple books. I would have never written a book. I would have never, ever done that if it wasn't therapeutic for me in the moment. And then it turned into something I'm like, wow, I enjoy this. And, and so we can be put on new paths and new journeys, and that's a, one of those positive pieces of growth. So the PTG is valuable, and hopefully you, you learn something from that and you embrace it. And also, again, know that if you're not there yet because you are suffering, it's okay. You can get there. Be the buffalo, work your way through the storms, and then hopefully you'll experience that PTG. That's incredible. I feel like that's a very good segue into thanking you again, Tim, for being a guest and sharing your words of wisdom and your traumatic experiences and the tragedy of losing Seth. I, I really applaud you again for the work that you do and give you a lot of respect and props for just continuing the conversation when it's definitely not an easy, easy conversation to have. And I look forward to continuing to see the work that you do. I followed you on a bunch of the social platforms. So I'm looking forward to continuing to watch your growth and to see where you go next. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline. I appreciate the follows. I'll make sure I follow you back on that. Uh, this summer, I don't plan on uh, doing too much, but this fall, I'll be looking out for the new website to start developing. I'll be posting a lot more about that. And, and I'm excited about where the journey is going to go. So thanks again for giving me the opportunity to talk and share and hopefully somebody can take something positive away from our time together. Absolutely. I am sure that others will be inspired. And unfortunately, somebody listening will probably resonate with your loss as well. So thank you again, Tim. And for the listeners, we're sending you lots of love and lots of light.